good. I remember when I was, I was a youth pastor, I was in a meeting like this, and we uh, were doing some, just asking the Lord just to, just to give words of knowledge, and, and uh, I remember this, this gentleman had, uh, we, we gave a word for diabetes, and this gentleman stood, he'd had diabetes his whole life, and uh, it was just very similar to that kind of a little word. We just gave the word, and the person stood, and uh, several of the teenagers just laid hands on this man, and uh, he went home and got retested for diabetes. And do you know the Lord completely healed that man's diabetes? <laughs> About five little teenagers laying hands on him. It's just a good. It's a similar, almost, I mean, it might have been the same meeting. I'm confused in my mind of it. But I remember this, uh, this young man, he had, a, uh, he had uh, some torn ligaments in his ankle. Same kind of thing. Little word for uh, just somebody with a problem in their right ankle, and uh, he had one of those boots, like snow boot kind of things you have to wear, you know. And he had that thing strapped on his ankle, and I remember um, giving the word, and uh, and the young man raised his hand over here. Well, I didn't see it because he was right up against the, st- you know, teenagers. They don't worship in their seats; they worship up against the stage, and uh, and so the stage was up to his, you know, his knees or whatever, up to his thighs, and uh, the. So he was up against the stage, so I couldn't see that he had a snow boot thing on his ankle. So I said, something's the problem with the right ankle, or I guess it was the right ankle. And, uh, and the young man raised his hand, and, and he stood back, and I saw the snow boot, and I went, okay, good, somebody pray for him. And, you know, I, I was in faith until I saw the, saw the snow boot thing. I was like, you know, good, somebody else is going to have to heal that one because I don't know how that works. But, uh, you know, Jesus is the healer. It's not the individual anyway. And so... Uh, I go to pray over here for something else, and all of a sudden behind me, I hear all these young people just screaming. They're, they're going crazy, and I turn around, and the kid with the snow boot has got the boot off, and he's holding it over his head, and he's jumping up and down, and all of my faith came right back. I said, what's happening? <laughs> he said, I'm healed. I said, well, come up, and he, he runs up on the platform. And I said, tell me what happened. What's going on? He goes, I have three torn ligaments in my ankle. He goes, I have three torn ligaments in my ankle. I go, could you, what could you not do? He goes, nothing. I, I couldn't do anything. I had to have this boot on. I couldn't bend it, couldn't move. I had no strength in it. I said, well, run up and down the stairs. I, you know, I turned into Benny Hinn. Take him. Take that anointing. I mean, I was like, run up. Show it to me again. What's happening over here? I mean, it was, so he's running up and down the stairs. He's jumping up and down, totally healed, instantly healed. This is so good. I called the kid a week later because I wanted to make sure it was real. I said, hey, you're the kid with the, the leg, right, the snow boot? He goes, yeah. I go, well, what's happening? He goes, I'm totally healed. I go, what did your mom think when you walked in the house holding the snow boot? Because, you know, you get in trouble for that kind of stuff when you're a youth pastor. <laughs> and... uh he goes, no, no, my mom goes to such and such church. She, I walked in holding the snow boot, and he said, she said, you're healed. I knew it. Praise the Lord. So it's kind of cool. Very cool. The Lord wants to break out with healings. It's so clear scripturally. So clear. And it doesn't have to be, be a big razzmatazz kind of thing. I really just sense the tenderness and the nearness of the Lord right now. I mean, really just sense the sweetness of his presence. I just believe in some of you that have, have the joint issues, 
that you don't notice a change right now, I believe you're even going to get changed and healed as you go. You know, some were healed instantly in the Bible, and then some were healed as they went. And, and I believe you're going to, some of you, you know, you'll be driving home, and you'll, you'll have forgotten about this moment. And then you'll go, you know, hey, that, hey, hey, that's working. Hey, I'm healed. And it, you'll be healed as you go. I believe that. Watch out for the right knee thing, because I think that's a, that's a healing. <laughs> good. All right, good. So we'll do part two on, on God's power to heal. Um, find Exodus chapter 15. I am, after praying over this this last week and even this afternoon, I, I'm very clear um, in my heart that there is a real accusation in the air, in, in our minds, in our hearts, against the knowledge of God as it relates to the will of the Lord in regard to healing. I'm really, really clear on it. Um, even this afternoon as I was praying over this uh, message this, this evening, I began to experience warfare over this point that it's always the Lord's will to heal. And I think that that is a very contested truth in, in our minds. But biblically, it is a very strongly established truth. And, and I'm convinced of this. I believe, uh, as 2 Corinthians tells us in, in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, that every attack of the enemy is against the knowledge of God. And if if uh, we're having an issue in the area of healing, that our issue is an attack against the knowledge of God, and if we are, if we are ex- uh, believing something about God that's not true about God, and as it relates to Him being a healer, then we can't employ our faith in a real way because we believe something that's false about God, God who is the healer, if we believe that he is perhaps subjective in his will as it relates to healing, then we're believing falsely about who he is. And then how can we have faith in the God who is a healer when we believe maybe it's not his will to always heal? So the issue really isn't, is your faith strong enough? The issue is, who do you believe God to be? Do you see my point? And if we believe who God is, as the Bible teaches, then we will have, be able to have faith to connect with everything that the Bible says that he is and everything the Bible says he does. But when we don't know the Lord, as the Scripture describes him, as the Scripture explains him, we don't understand his attributes, then we are distant from the knowledge of God and we are not able to employ our faith. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Should I say it again or do we get it? I'll say it again. Here's the deal. If we believe something false about God, then the knowledge of who we think God is inhibits us from being able to use our faith that He is a God that does good things. For instance, if we think God is a God that sometimes um, you know, is angry with us when we do wrong, then we won't have uh, faith to believe that he loves us even when we sin. See, the issue is a knowledge of God issue. And so if we think, now let me just use it as it relates to healing. If we think God's will regarding healing is subjective, that it changes bases based upon our circumstance or something that we do or maybe his moods, 
If we think that his will regarding healing is subjective, then we will not be able to use faith in scriptures that say that he is a healer because we don't know if God wants to heal us or not. Well, our our, uh, uh, sense of his will for us as it relates to healing will be blurry. And so the issue isn't so much, uh, like I want to say it this way, it's more of a knowledge of God issue than it is a, is your faith strong enough issue? And if you have a right knowledge of God, then you just believe who God is. And if you believe it in truth, then all of a sudden, all the benefits that Psalm 103 says that, the, that God gives us, they become normal things in our lives. But when we have an issue connecting ourselves with, you know, say, healing, many times it's not, is your faith strong enough? It's just that you're believing something that's not right about who God is. Does that make sense? And so I want to deal with this issue about the will of the Lord as it relates to healing. And I want to say this many, many times tonight because it, the accusation is this. The accusation is that it is not always God's will to heal. That's the accusation. But the truth is that it is always God's will to heal. And so I want to say over and over and over, it is always God's will to heal you. It is always God's will to heal you. Biblically, it is always God's will to heal you. And his will is not subjective in this matter. And so I, I think because we think that his will is subjective regarding healing, or that the Lord, you know, uh, just based on circumstances, uh, decides whether he wants to heal or not, that we have a hard time connecting to his promises regarding healing. And so it's a knowledge of God issue. But the truth of the matter is that he has established his will completely through the scriptures regarding healing. He's established his will firmly. And what he's made clear to us through the Bible is that it is always his will to heal. It is always his will to heal. And especially clearly as it relates to his people. Always his will to heal his people. So I want to I come against this accusation that's floating in the air because the obvious uh, question that is begged in people's mind is, well, if it's always his will to heal, how come, see, because you're hearing the same accusations that I hear, how come not everybody is healed? And so what the enemy wants to do is use that accusation, how come not everybody is healed, and he wants to make that a, um, he wants to say that that accusation determines uh, God's will. The fact that not everyone is healed, therefore it must not always be God's will to heal. That's what the enemy wants to say. But the, you know, the scripture is clear in 2, Peter's, uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He wants all to come to salvation. He's not willing that anyone would perish. But he wills for everyone to be saved. Now here's the challenge. Is everybody saved? They're not, are they? But it is God's will for everybody to be saved, is it not? Well, the same can be uh, said of healing. It is God's will for everyone to be healed, even though the experience that we see is that not everyone is. I'm not trying to get into the factors why people aren't healed. We might touch that stuff. We may not. But what I'd really like to do is get us our eyes on who God is 
and the knowledge of God as healer, and I think a bunch of the knots that are in our chain will just get gone, and we'll get healed a lot more. That sound like a good plan? So I came up with a few reasons, biblical reasons, uh, how we can see that God's will is not subjective as it relates to healing, that God's will is established, and that He is willing, always willing, to heal. The first reason we find in Exodus 20, uh, uh, 15, verse 26, and the first reason is this, that healing is His very name. It is His name. Exodus 15, verse 26, He says, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments, keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, why? For I am the Lord who heals you. The Hebrew is Jehovah Rapha. I am the one that is your physician. I am the one that is your mender. I am the one that puts you back together when you've been beaten, bruised, afflicted, and stricken. That's what he calls himself. When he establishes healing as part of his name, he removes any kind of subjective reality regarding his will. For he would not put something in his name that is not his will. Does that make sense? So when he says, I am the Lord, your physician, I am the Lord, your mender, I am the Lord, your healer, forever he establishes this non-subjective feature of who he is. And that feature is, he's a healer. And when he puts it in his name, he is clarifying to us that it is his will. For he would never put a piece of uh, information in his name. He would never describe an attribute of himself that wasn't his will. If he calls himself healer, then it's definitely his will to heal. Does that make sense? Next. I'm just going to move through these, and then I'm going to get the one in the New Testament. I, I really have got to get to the Canaanite woman. Make sure I get to the Canaanite woman, okay? Just make sure. If I just start going long on a point, go, hey, Canaanite woman. Next, Jesus only did what he saw the Father do. He only said what he heard the Father say. That's what John chapter 5 verse 19 tells us. So the works of Jesus are clear. We get it several times in the New Testament that Jesus went around teaching, preaching, and healing. Okay, so if Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing, which is what John 5 tells us, and he goes around preaching, teaching, and healing, it's clear that it's the Father's will to release healing, because there's no way the Eternal Father would be doing things that he doesn't want to do. He only does what he wills to do, and for Jesus to see him, Jesus saw the Father healing, and he did what he saw the Father do. Jesus was the expression of the Father in the earth. And so when we see Jesus always healing, guess what we see? The will of the Father in manifestation. It's always his will to heal. Always. Next, Jesus commissioned his disciples to heal. 
He told them to heal. He goes, go about, preach the gospel. He goes, cast out demons, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, and raise the dead. Is there any chance that Jesus would have told the disciples to do stuff that he did not want them to do? No. He commissioned them according to his will, according to what he saw the Father do. And when Jesus commissions the disciples to go and heal the sick, he's commissioning them according to his will. He's establishing his will by telling him what he wants them to do. Next, Hebrews 10, 7 through 9 explains that Jesus did all the will of the Father. He said, I came to do your will. And when Jesus was beaten with a cat of nine tails and it ripped his back off and he received stripes on his back for healing, The Bible tells us it pleased the Father to crush him. And so when he did the will of the Father by being submitted to the stripes of of the uh, Roman scourge, he was operating in perfect unison with God's will as it related to healing. He accomplished all the will of the Father, and by going to the, to the scourge of the stripes of the Roman centurions, by going under that scourge, he established God's will. Because God desired to bruise his son for our healing. We see the will of the Father in manifestation when we see Jesus whipped mercilessly by Roman centurions. He gives us, next, he gives us an ordinance in Mark 16, in verse 18. He gives believers an ordinance for healing. And he says this, if you who believe lay hands on the sick, they will be healed. Now, there is no way that he's going to command us and give us an ordinance to heal If healing is not his will. He doesn't give any exceptions. He doesn't give any qualifications. He says, them that believe, they shall lay hands on the sick, and the sick shall recover. There's not any qualifications to it. It's believers, they lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, if he was trying to make this, uh, you know, subjective to his will in certain situations and and only apply to certain scenarios and, and, and not apply to other scenarios, he would say, now, believers will lay hands on the sick, and sometimes, when it's my will, they will recover. But instead, he said... They will lay hands on the sick, and the sick will recover. It takes out the variable. He gives us this ordinance to heal, and it establishes the reality of his will. He's not going to give us an ordinance that's not his plan. In in, uh, Mark chapter 1, we looked at this whole uh, story last week with the, uh, the leper who comes to Jesus, we talked about how Jesus was moved with compassion, how he's always touched 
with our infirmity. He's always moved over what we're going through. He's always feeling, you know, uh, sorrow and, and, and empathy for us when we're going through, you know, challenges and trials and in sickness. He's moved with compassion 12 different times in the New Testament. We see Jesus move with compassion, and that's why he healed. It was the main motivator for healing. So when we see him with this leper, the leper is, you know, wrapped in these garments. He's, uh, you know, uh, got putrefying flesh. He's bleeding through these, uh, these rags. And Jesus, he's not even supposed to be around anybody. Lepers were banished. And he asked Jesus, he says, uh, if you're willing, I know you're able. You can make me clean. If you're willing. We only have it one time in the scripture where Jesus has ever asked his will regarding healing. You know how he answered? I am willing. And he lays hands on the leper. He touches the leper. One of the coolest things to me about Jesus is he actually crosses the line on the law when he touches the leper, and then after the leper is healed, he tells the leper to offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded in the law. It's like, you're pretty cool, Lord. You wrote it, so I guess you can cross it when you want, but uh, you have the guy follow it, you know, it's just kind of interesting. He gives us the eye. There's a great concept of theology in, in that ex example. He shows us that the, the law is there to serve people, and people aren't there to serve the law. And so the only time we ever see Jesus questioned regarding his will, it's in one of the most, you know, uh, sort of dicey situations there is. I mean, he's got a leper who's not even supposed to be around people. I mean, this leper's supposed to be banished. And he says, are you willing to even heal me? He said, I am willing. I am willing. Jesus' word and his will are one reality. When he told the leper he was willing, it wasn't just for that one leper that one time, it was for all time. He was describing and establishing the truth of his will. He is willing to heal, always willing to heal. And then finally, I want to give you these verses to look at, them, look at them on your own. You know what I began to realize as I've been studying this, this issue of healing? You know how we study intimacy, and we look at the scriptures on intimacy. You know, I am dark but lovely, and we, we hear the truth of it, and we go, oh, that's so good, but I don't get it yet. You know, I don't get it that I can sin, and God still likes me. I just have to keep meditating on it, and I've got to sing it, and I've got to say it, and I've got to read the verses, and I've got to write it, and I've got to pray these things and understand that he's a glad God who loves me even in my weakness, and when I fall and stumble, God loves me. And I've got to actually, I've got to work that into my soul because everything in the earth tells me that God doesn't like me. And if I don't, and if I don't perform well and I don't measure up, then he doesn't love me. That my performance and his love for me is, you know, it's, how's that go? They're, they're relying upon one another. That if I perform well, then God loves me. But that's not the truth of the scripture. The truth is that he loves me without regard to my performance. Well, you know what I realized? I've got to just meditate on that to get that down in my soul. Well, you know what the thing is? Same thing with the verses on healing. I've got to meditate on these to get them down in my soul, to comprehend the will of the Lord as established and set. So I want to give you these verses. 
Matthew 8, verse 16. Matthew 12, verse 15. Luke 4, verse 40. Luke 6, verse 19. Matthew 8, 16. Matthew 12, 15. Luke 4, verse 40. Luke 6, verse 19. You know what I realize? You read these verses, and guess what? Each one of these verses have one thing in common. Everyone who ever came to Jesus was healed. It was always his will to heal everyone who came to him. Shocking. There was, I mean, can you imagine? The, the Bible says great multitudes. I mean, it could be 500, it could be 1,000, it could be 5,000 people. Sometimes it was every sick person from two or three cities would come to be there and, and, and wanted Jesus to pray for them. And there was never one time in Jesus' ministry on the earth where the, the you know, multitudes of sick people lined up and he's laying hands on people and goes, Hope! Not you. Not my will to heal you. Do you think all the sick people that ever showed up in Jesus' healing lines, do you think all those people were always like just perfect, like just did everything just right? I know, they weren't even saved. But here's the other thing. Malchus, the high priest's servant, was arresting Jesus Peter cuts his ear off, and Jesus picks his ear up, puts it back on. Lord, even permit this. And he healed him. I mean, it's his will to heal the guy that's there to arrest him to get him crucified. You have a yes in your heart. You love him. How much more is it his will to heal you? And everybody that ever showed up, everybody that ever showed up for healing to Jesus. Everybody that ever showed up to Jesus said, I need healing. He healed them all. He healed them all. It's powerful. And then you get this one place where we got to talk about the Canaanite woman. <laughs> I got it. Matthew 15. Turn over there. And this little conversation, now that I got you pumped up on seven reasons why it's always his will to heal, it will offend you. <laughs> Because at a glance, it looks like he calls this woman a dog. <laughs> he actually does call her a dog. But it's not the kind of dog you're thinking. Matthew 15. <clears throat> the story shows up in Mark 7 also, in verse 24. And you get a few little features from Mark 7 that you don't get from Matthew 15. And you get a few features from Matthew 15 that you don't get in Mark 7. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it in, in the Matthew 15 version. But I'm going to also read uh, parenthetically little, the little pieces of information that are uh, from Mark chapter 7. Okay. And so when you hear, when, if you're looking at Matthew 15 and you hear me say something that's not in the Matthew 15 account, it's because I'm pulling it over from Mark 7. 
Here we go. Verse 21, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now he was in the region of Galilee, and the district of Tyre and Sidon was about 30 miles uh, northwest. So he goes about 30 miles away from where he was. That's going to be important in a minute, and I'll explain it to you. And Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he, but he could not be hidden. And behold, a Canaanite woman, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My young daughter is severely demon-possessed, oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him. She fell at his feet, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, Let the children be filled first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. That's so intense. Oh, you know what? Oh, no. Yep, I'm missing a page of my notes. Praise the Lord. Yeah, I'll have to just go off. Is it over there? No, it's not over there. I know where it is. It's on the printer. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. It'll be all right. All right, little dogs here. Now I've got to read actually from the Bible. And she said, I know because... I'm reading from my pages where my notes are. Listen, look, okay? No, it's good. It's, it's two verses. I got it. I'll be all right. The notes are up here to help me, like, in case I, you know, fall off the, the live wire, the high wire or whatever. But a lot of times I never use the notes. But I always reference the verses off my notes. So now I've actually got to turn in my Bible to the verse. So now I'm there. Just, just letting you know live what we do. Here, this is how we go. If you wanted to come here and you wanted a cool preacher, you went the wrong place. All right, verse 27. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. And, and the, the Mark 7 account, it says, it's because of this saying, she said. Because of this saying, that line, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This is such a powerful story. All right, so here's the deal. If you read earlier in Matthew 15, what you have is this. Jesus is talking to the Jews who are from Jerusalem, they're the main guys, and they show up uh, in Galilee, in the region of Galilee, which is several miles away, it's 15 or 20, 30 maybe, and they're over there to, to catch Jesus in his words. They want to test him and catch him in his words. And so, Jesus says to them, you all make the word of God of no effect because you follow the traditions uh, of your fathers and not the scriptures. 
and he rebukes them soundly. And it's such a strong rebuke that in uh, chapter 15, verse 12, it's right there, the disciples turn over to Jesus. They go, did you know you offended them when you said that? And what they're saying is, do you, do you know how offended they are with you? And so Jesus goes from there, 30 miles northwest, to a region of only Gentiles. And the reason why he's going there is because it's not time for him to die yet. If you read through the gospel accounts, you'll find that they tried to take Jesus' life several different times. One time they were going to throw him off a cliff and he actually walks supernaturally through a, a crowd that's wanting to throw him off a cliff. He walks right through the midst of them because it wasn't yet his time. In this case... These Pharisees are so, I believe that they are so agitated with the way he just rebuked them that they are going to, you know, do something and Jesus goes and travels 30 miles northwest. So he shows up, and this is so interesting to me, he shows up in Tyre and Sidon and he enters a house and he goes, hey, listen, don't tell anyone I'm here. Like our Jesus, hey, don't tell anyone, let me just... Go in here and hang out for a little while. I don't want anybody to know. You know, we kind of don't see him like that, do we? Kind of think, you know, everywhere he goes, it's like, bring everybody. He actually shows up there and says, don't tell anybody. In fact, I just love Jesus' marketing campaign. He heals people and then he says, don't tell anyone. And they always did. He would, heal, he would heal tons of people and say, don't tell anyone. Our leper from Mark chapter 1, he heals him. He goes, don't tell anyone except go do the sacrifice that Moses commanded that you needed to do with the priest. And what would happen was his marketing campaign was don't tell anyone. And then the scripture will say, but the noise was, uh, it was noised abroad about him even the more. Everybody, he didn't, you know, he didn't do handouts and flyers and all the stuff. He didn't have a website. You know, he, I mean, we have all these little cool things. He did none of it. His marketing campaign was this, don't tell anybody. That was his marketing campaign. Somebody's like, oh, that's so cool, trick psychology, you know, reverse. Not at all. That's not what he was doing. You know what? He was the most meek man ever. He just didn't, he, he didn't need it. He was God. So he's like, well, he's trying to get his message out. No, he really, all he needed to do was shock about 12 guys. That's really what he was trying to do. He was trying to get to 12 guys, and when he would tell some guy that got healed, hey, you don't have to tell anybody, he meant it because he was meek. He was humble. And so the noise would be noised abroad, and then massive crowds would come, and they just want to touch him. So he shows up in Tyre and Sidon, and they've already heard about him. And he says, listen, don't tell anybody that I'm here. And somehow, this little Canaanite woman, she finds out. Like, how does she find out? I mean, she sees him go in the house and goes, hey, wait a minute. I saw him because a lot of people would come down from Tyre and Sidon, and, the other, and they'd go into the other cities where Jesus was doing massive miracles. They would go to Capernaum or wherever, and they'd go, in, and it would be, you know, the people from Tyre and Sidon would come down, and they'd want to see what was going on with this new prophet. And so undoubtedly, this woman either knew the entourage or, you know, knew the owner of the house. Somehow she got in on it. 
And so she shows up, and she is a Syrophoenician. She's a a Syrian and a Phoenician mixed. They use the term Canaanite because it it was a general word to describe a Gentile. She is not saved, and she doesn't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so she's not a Jew. That's the big point here. She is not a Jew. And she shows up, and she, she's talking to Jesus. She's crying out, and she uses the messianic title, Son of David. Now, that is a shocker. Because so many of the Jews don't even really believe he's Messiah. But here you have this Gentile woman, and she says, Son of David, have mercy. My little daughter is demon-possessed. Think about this. What's going on in a mom who's got a baby at home who is manifesting demons? How did the mom know she was demon-possessed? Because she was manifesting demons. She was doing what demon-possessed people do. She was growling and snarling and foaming and talking in multiple voices. And this was her little baby. Now think about that for a minute, moms. That Syrophoenician woman didn't care if Jesus didn't want to talk to anybody. She said, my baby is manifesting demons. And she didn't care that she wasn't a daughter of Abraham. It didn't matter to her. And she didn't care that she was a woman. I mean, how many lines of taboo is she crossing? She's going to go bust into this house, talk to the Jewish Messiah, and she is a Gentile, doesn't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and she is going to cross all these lines. Why? Because her little girl is demonized. And she's not okay with that. So she says, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Severely oppressed by a demon. And in verse 23, you get this. It challenges us regarding his will. He doesn't answer her a word. Our Jesus. It's kind of like, you know, we can't see the human side of him. So the idea that he's actually there and doesn't want anybody to know about, that's a little stretch for us. But then you get this woman who comes in whose daughter is demon-possessed, and she is crying out to Jesus, and she is saying, please have mercy. My daughter is demonized. Have mercy. And he doesn't say anything. And that's rough. And, you know, I mean... Depending on your lens of the knowledge of God, you might think he kind of went, <laughs> you know, just kind of stuck his snoot out and, <laughs> I want to talk to you, dirty Gentile. You know, I mean, you don't, you know, yeah, he's French now. But, but I don't know that I see it that way. I think, I think Jesus is looking at her. And all that he is as God is moving inside of him. And he's looking at her and he's going, mm, mm. <sighs> I 
Like, and you know, it's, it's, it's working on him. Because he's just as moved with compassion as he always is. And so here's what happens. She can't get Jesus to say anything. So she turns around and goes to the disciples and goes, please. And she's crying out after them now. Please. And I believe she's getting more and more intense, more boisterous. She's grabbing them. Peter, please. Matthew, please. Bartholomew, Thaddeus, please, please, please. James, John, please. I mean, she's making a scene. And it's getting so intense that they actually turn to Jesus and they go, hey, really? Send her away, like really. And here's, you know, it looks like, at a glance, it looks like they're telling Jesus to get rid of her. But they're not. They're telling Jesus to heal her, heal her daughter. They're telling Jesus to do what she's asking. How do we know? Because he answers, in the next sentence, he answers their request. He says, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. In other words, he's saying, I can't send her away and have her daughter healed because I'm only sent to the Jews. And right there is the issue. That's what's going on. Why is he not talking to her? Her daughter is demonized. Why is he not saying anything? Why won't he send her away and grant her what she's asking for? Because he has been commissioned by the eternal father to only minister to the nation of Israel. He went to the land of the Gentiles and he didn't want anybody to know about it. Why? Because he didn't want throngs of Gentiles coming and asking him for ministry when he knew he wasn't supposed to be ministering to them. He was commissioned by God himself to only go to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. So you end up with this. You have God in the flesh caught between a rock and a hard place. The God who is compassion itself, whose name is healer, whose will is completely established, has a woman who he is not sent to making a scene asking for deliverance for her baby girl. It is a humanly awkward situation. And so he answers, he goes, listen guys, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I, it, the point is, he goes, I can't minister to her because my commission is so specific. My mandate is so, so narrow. And so, the woman takes it up a notch. She goes from crying out in desperation and hunger to bowing down and worshiping him in adoration. I mean, she is pulling out all the stops. She was screaming in desperation, and now she's kneeling before him in love. She comes, she kneels before him and falls at his feet. And then she says this crazy thing, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. That's, that's Hosanna. That's Hosanna. Lord, help me is Hosanna. 
Now she's actually said to him, you are the son of David and Hosanna. That was the messianic title. Come and save, son of David. Come and save. She's down at Jesus' feet, worshiping him, saying, do what you love to do, you Messiah. You son of God, come and save. I know. And so, I mean, Jesus, he's still Jesus. He still loves the wounded and the brokenhearted. He still is moved with compassion. He's still merciful. And he says, now, if you read this at a glance, you'll think it's so offensive. And you, if you've got him with the snooty look and the French accent, <laughs> ha, 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 you little dog, you know, then you'll think him to be stern and cold and, and rude. But I don't see him like that at all. I see him like this. He goes, it's, it's not good for me to do, the idea is he goes, it's not good for me to do what you're asking. I have got a narrow commissioning. It's not good for me to take the bread that's supposed to go to the children of Israel and give it to the Gentile nations. And see, that term dogs, you and I think of the mangy mutt, that was just a standard comparison of, of the, the region that the, the Jews were the sons of Abraham and that the Gentiles were dogs. It was another way to say unsaved, doesn't know the Lord. Another way to say Canaanite. It wasn't this nasty thing that we think of. I'm not saying it's a pleasant comparison, but she knew she was a dog. She doesn't even get upset with it. She doesn't go, dog? Who are you calling dog? It doesn't even, it doesn't even, you know, you know what I mean? It doesn't even shock her. She's not surprised by it. And so that's the, that's the word that scandalizes us, but he's speaking to her in the vernacular of the day is the point. He goes, the deal is this. I have got such a narrow mandate from the Father. And, 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 and the way he says it in Mark is he says, the children have to be filled first. He goes, I've come to fill the children. And I think right there is where it, it, it ignites for her. She goes, wait a minute. If the children are filled first, somebody's getting filled second. You, you know, it's like he stepped in it a little bit, you know. She, she gets it. She goes, oh, so... so Right, you're to them first, but that means you're going to someone else second. It's like she gets revelation of the way the whole thing is supposed to go anyway. Remember the gospel is to the who? The Jew first and then also the Greek. And I think she gets it. She goes, right, you are the son of David. You are the Messiah. You are to the Jew first. She goes, but you know what? Even little dogs like me get a little bit of crumbs that fall off the master's table. She goes, surely there's a little something you can do for my daughter. And that's so good. And it's right there when he goes, you know what? I can't take it anymore, by the way. Is this saying of yours? He goes, no. You have plucked 
every chord in my heart. That's what he, that's what's happened. He gets moved, and you know what? He goes and he gives her the word, and her daughter is delivered in the same moment. Now think about this. God the Father gives God the Son the mandate, only go to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. God the Son gets in a sticky spot with the Canaanite woman, He's with a Gentile who's calling him Son of David, have mercy, come and save, and I might be a dog, but I am your dog. And Jesus does what God the Son does when he's stuck in a spot like that. You know what he does? He gets moved with compassion and heals her. Heals the daughter. Why? Because it's always his will to heal. Even when it crosses the narrow mandate that he has in his earthly ministry, he still heals. Now, how crazy is that, that we would ever believe we who are in covenant by his own blood that he shed for us, that we would ever believe that his will for us is anything but healing. He's always kind. He's always compassionate. He's always moved with mercy and always wants to answer and heal. And it doesn't matter who you are. You can be completely out of covenant and he's always willing. I, wanna, I want to kill the idea that's floating around in our minds, because it's in our minds, that somehow when we didn't get healed or that person that didn't get healed, somehow it wasn't his will. No, it's always his will. It's always his will. He's always willing. If he's willing to heal the Canaanite woman, guess what? Canaanite woman's daughter, he's willing to heal you. Always willing. Stand. Let's just stand. Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. That's the only record we have of sort of where the will of the Lord comes into question. But it's really not the will that's in question. The will is a total yes. The question is his narrow mandate as, a, as God in the flesh. Can you see that? He's willing to heal you. He's willing to heal you. He's always willing. It's always his will to heal. It's always his will to heal. We may not comprehend all the circumstances. We may not know what's in the way. Sometimes there's things that block. Sometimes there's things that cause our, our focus and our connection with God to be blurred and imbued. But he is always willing to heal. Always willing. It's his name. It's his commission to us. It's what he did in fulfilling the Father's will on the earth. He always healed them all. It's what he said, I am willing.